1: we are joined each weekday at this time by my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to catch up with you. How is the snow apocalypse going uh, in your
2: neck of the woods? Well, I haven't been killed by the delta cron, but the, <laughs> the cold weather might just do me in. Did, did you uh, guys did the
1: storm live up to the hype? I, I understand this was going to be a oh, big one. Oh, Every bit of
2: it. Okay. Every bit of it. For once they actually got it 100% right. We got dumped on uh, more than a foot of snow, biting cold weather, uh, biting cold wind. And then on top of that, ice, sleet, and freezing rain. So uh, I now live in uh, an Arctic wasteland. Even my diesel tractor has has had a time of it trying to push this stuff because it's it's compacted and thick. It's like it's like almost solid cement at this point.
1: Yikes! You guys did get the full monty. Well,
2: I'm sorry, yeah, we to hear
1: did. It. Global warming will be along shortly to free you from you your, know, but your you bondage.
2: Know, <laughs> speaking of that, though, I'm uh, I'm internally grateful to all the dead dinosaurs who gave their lives or the algae blooms that gave their lives for the fossil fuels that are keeping me warm right now and uh, i don't have to worry about staying warm if the power goes out because my uh, propane heater runs even if the power goes out and i don't have to schlep outside to haul logs back into the house to keep warm that way yeah i'd
1: say you've you've made the best of the situation and potentially any other situations that, that could be coming down the road. Now, I understand that Virginia is, is uh, has undergone a change in management. Your your new governor mm-hmm. was inaugurated recently. That actually looked like a pretty positive thing. Tell us about it.
2: Well, hugely positive. Uh, it was quite the political upset, as a number of others have observed. Uh, it, you know, it was presumed that uh, a creature of the Clintons, uh, Terry McAuliffe, was going to become the successor to Ralph Northam, a.k.a. the Coon Man, but uh, I think woke fatigue changed those plans, and we got Glenn Youngkin, who's a Republican, which is quite something given the, the political pull of northern Virginia and of Richmond, which dominate the state politically. But having said that, I think that even in those very, very red areas of Virginia, there is fatigue with wokeness and the past two years and the calamity that has been visited upon all of us as a result of these insane, demented leftist, uh, leftist policies so we got youngkin, Ken, and I was ambivalent about him because he seemed to me to be kind of a uh, a rhino, Mitt Romney kind of a guy at, at first and based on his record. But within an hour of having been sworn in, he issued a, a, a blizzard of executive orders uh, that were quite uh, encouraging, including um, rescinding mask mandates in schools and also uh, uh, anti-jab mandates for the state generally and vaccine pass mandates. So that's a really good sign, particularly when you factor into account that, uh, you know, he was basically putting a thumb in the eye to, to these crazy people who dominate in northern Virginia and Richmond.
1: That's good. And actually, I, I understand this may be a boon for voters in uh, Michigan, who uh, recently just I think it was the the state's Democratic Party had tweeted something out about how parents shouldn't be involved in telling you know mm-hmm. telling teachers or telling a, a school administrators what their kids should be learning because the, they're not there to learn what their parents want them to know they're there to learn what society wants them to know. They since have deleted that mm-hmm. tweet. They've walked it back. Hey, uh, you know that's not representative. But it's it's the same thing that got McAuliffe in trouble when he Absolutely. said parents yeah.
2: have no room no
1: room to be involved
2: in this. Yeah, it's literally the same thing that sealed the doom of McAuliffe. And there was some contretemps uh, regarding that um, up in Loudoun County, where I used to live, which is very, very close to D.C., where the local school board had attempted to impose this this gender-fluid rule that allowed biological boys to use the same bathrooms as biological girls. And there was a particularly gross incident of multiple rape committed by a boy who was given access to the girls' bathroom, and they tried to shut that up. And even worse, uh, they tried to shut up the uh, the, do- the parents of the kids who were assaulted, and that didn't sell well. Uh, you know, I think, and it tells us that while there are, there are crazy people out there, they are in the minority, even among Democrats who are not all crazy. They're just Democrats. I think when we when we talk about this, we have to be very careful to uh, to, to, to separate out the people who are genuinely out of their minds. By which I mean the hardcore left people. And, and ordinary Democrats, who I think are becoming weary of this almost as much as people like you and I have become weary of it. Yeah, the the
1: great dividing line that I'm seeing, and this, this includes some Democrats and unfortunately some Republicans as well, is the people who feel that they have the prerogative to control the uh, the other folks around them and use the yep. state force in order to accomplish that.
2: Yep. Well, that's always been a thread that has run through American politics But now we're seeing it uh, devolve to its inevitable end result, which is insanity. You know, it's no longer about, well, hmm, uh, should we raise property taxes in your area uh, in order to build another school and in order to raise teacher salaries? You know, that's something that uh, a libertarian would object to. It's something many conservatives would object to. Now we're talking about putting boys in girls' bathrooms, you know, and, and things of that type, which are insane. It's no longer just about control. It's about... Uh, mental illness derangement and it's about normalizing abnormalcy you and i talked a little bit off the air about this thing i I caught this morning as i was prepping for the show there's a a substitute teacher who's posted a video that's going all around the net uh, who got fired from the school where she was working because she refused to meow back at a boy in her class who identifies as a cat
1: wow how dare she (laughs) I mean, really? She she refuses to be conscripted into his fantasy. That is just yeah, un- unthinkable.
2: Exactly. exactly. And most people, and I, you know, I use that, that, that term deliberately because I think it encompasses most people, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, would hear about something like that and go, you know, that's that's crazy. You know, it's, it's no longer about reasonable differences of opinion about whether A or B should be done, whether we should pay more or less taxes. It's about things that are, are corrosive to a sane society. Whether we're talking about kids meowing and identifying as cats, uh, or walking around with multiple diapers on and an astronaut helmet. Did you catch the thing I wrote oh, the other day about that that other teacher?
1: I did, and I like the term you coined, "rona monomania."
2: <laughs> yeah, brilliant. And the kicker is that this guy this this guy was doing it a, a Zoom type rant. That he put out to his students, so he wasn't even in proximity to a single other human being. But he's so out of his mind with hate and fear that he's he's promulgating uh, this, this 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 narrative that his students are vectors of disease from his self isolated cell somewhere, wearing his literal spaceman helmet and his diaper over his face. It's insane. Well, and the the
1: the profane rant he goes on to now. This is a tenured professor, but um, yeah, yes. he, he is. He's unhinged. I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to be deferential. But um, I don't see how any b- person could watch his rant and come away thinking, oh, no, he's right. That's a reasonable approach.
2: Well, you know, I think it is kind to identify him as mentally ill. I think it is the unkindest thing of all to shy away from identifying that sort of illness as anything other than illness. And multiple other examples of that in your part of the country. You probably saw this business. I think it's the Salt Lake Tribune that published oh, yeah. an editorial yeah, urging that the National Guard be used uh, to, to keep the dreaded, unvaxxed lockdown in their homes. This is pathological. These people are dangerous. It's no longer about... Well, you know, I understand that so-and-so is alarmed, you know, they're they're afraid of, of disease. These people are dangerous. They're out of their minds, and it's time, first of all, that we identify them as that in order to treat this and hopefully to cure it.
1: I actually saw a video clip on Twitter earlier today. Uh, someone had taken this while they were waiting in the plane to be pushed back from the ramp and, you know, taxi out to take off. And they just were kind of surreptitiously uh, videoing a guy sitting across the aisle from him who put on five, five Masks one after the other after the other, and, and the the caption just said, Tell me this isn't a mental illness
2: sure, right, and and somehow we're not supposed to notice that and comment on it. I, I think we have reached a very dangerous point, a fulcrum point, where by not calling this out and not in an abusive way, just simply saying, This person has a severe mental problem and this person is in need of therapy and treatment, what we're doing is fostering more of it. Uh, you know we're accelerating and ramping up. The, this this manufactured hysteria and terror that a lot of people who have fallen victim to it legitimately feel. You know, I don't doubt for a minute that that guy who put on the, the five masks was performing some kind of virtue signaling kabuki. I think people like that really do believe that that's going to keep them safe. Um, but that doesn't make them any less crazy. You know, you used to see people pushing shopping carts underneath overpass bridges wearing masks and, and gloves and you'd look at them and you'd feel bad for them because that person clearly they had a psychiatric problem well now we've got millions and millions of people in this country who have severe psychiatric problems and are badly in need of being treated
1: well and and again the the danger is it's not that we're trying to single them out and say boy they should you know they should be called out as mentally ill the problem is they want to bring us into their psychosis and they and they look at us with yes. with uh, you know uh, they, they look at us with side glances because we're not buying into the same fears.
2: Sure, and, you know, and that brings us back to the boy who meowed. You know, the proper approach to that is to sit the kid down, hopefully the parents, and say, you know, Jim or Bob or whatever the kid's name is, you're not a cat, uh, and you're a little boy, and and you know, explain the difference to him. You know, you don't encourage that. You don't tell the kid to pretend that reality doesn't exist, and and that he's a feline rather than a human being.
1: No, I'm I'm with you there, Eric. When we come back, we're going to talk about something that's going to be a near and dear topic to a lot of people who have, well, teenagers getting their driver's license or otherwise starting to drive. Eric Peters is my guest. His website is epautos.com. There's a link in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, I see you were a guest on the Tom Woods show. Congratulations.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Tom and I go way back. I've been on his show a bunch of times. Uh, he's, a, he's a great guy and also a, a heavyweight hitter when it comes to talking about libertarian political issues and economic issues.
1: Yep, definitely one of my favorite sources of good, principled information. And and I was surprised that, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you guys had talked about, um, I, I guess you had talked about this previously, was who should mm-hmm. buy your teen driver's first car? Yep. Now, I happen to yep, find myself in, in, in a situation where I have a 16-year-old boy who's just in the mm-hmm. process of getting his license, so this is a question looming over our, our family right now. Where do you begin a discussion like that?
2: Well, I think you have to start with the, the, the different parameters that parents are dealing with today. And when you and I were that age, uh, you could go out and pick up a beater. You probably did just like I did for a few hundred bucks. And uh, that was easy enough to do on your uh, side gig of cutting grass or shoveling snow or working at McDonald's after school. That's almost impossible today. And, and, and part of the reason for that, of course, is due to the political situation you know the the average price of a used car serviceable used car now is up more than thirty percent it's very hard to find anything that's operable for much less than five thousand bucks and then yeah. you've got the additional problem of the this, this mandatory insurance that particularly targets teenagers and the typical cost of that is around two thousand dollars a year for them what teenage what what teenage kid can afford that you know very few even if they're hardworking, industrious kids it's very difficult so what do you do uh one, one thing you can do, I think, is to uh, parent finance. You know, help the kid to save up money, encourage the kid to work, uh, and uh, have enough for a down payment on a car, perhaps, and say $2,500 or so. And then the parent can loan the kid uh, $2,500 at a reasonable rate of interest so that they're not just slayed by debt and can actually afford to own and drive the car, including the cost of the insurance.
1: Yeah, it's... I... I'm very sad to say that as we've been looking around thinking okay we've not we've got to get a car something that our teenager can drive he's he's mm-hmm. applying for work at various places he's going to have to get himself there but I noticed in your article used cars are up more than 30% in price yep. over just the past year
2: ouch yeah and it's a it's a double whammy it's, it's not just the cost of the uh the prices uh, the price of the cars have in, has increased that much. You know, wages have not increased in tandem with that. So in effect, it's substantially more than that because you can't afford to—you know—you can't afford to make up that difference. And then you've got the problem of the car insurance on top of that. And then right. you've got the problem of gas now being—you know—close to four bucks a gallon for most people. And it's just—it's it, just a very, very difficult thing for these kids to deal with. And as you say, though, that you know, the car is. Uh, is, is that first big step um, toward adulthood and self-sufficiency. And it's really important that they have that so that they can go out and work without having to be driven to work by you and to have the latitude and the ability to travel on their own and grow up. Very hard to do that when you don't have a car.
1: And I'm not trying to throw any shade at the insurance industry, but I'm pretty sure I heard champagne corks pop when we said, hey, we need to add our 16-year-old son to our insurance. Maybe sure, somebody in the background said, hey, we can't afford the cabin. <laughs> Let's celebrate.
2: Sure, exactly. And, you know, I, I rant about insurance a lot, and one of the reasons that I rant about it is because it's mandatory. And because it's mandatory, it costs us all far more than it would otherwise, simply because you don't have the option to say no. You know, if they if they tell you, oh, we're going to increase your premium by 40% because your teenage driver is on the policy now, you can't say, you know what, that's extortionate, I'm not paying that. You either you know, charge me a reasonable amount or I'm canceling the policy. They know they've got you. And as a result of that, we, you know, we, we pay more, all of us, not just parents of teen drivers, but everybody.
1: So any recommendations, I mean, notwithstanding the higher prices and some of the, the prohibitive barriers that make it tougher to get that, that first teenage car, um, what kind of cars do you recommend for those who are able to, to find one for their teen driver?
2: Well, this isn't going to make me popular with teenagers who are listening to this, but uh, I strongly recommend extremely unpopular cars, minivans being one very good example. Um, those are pretty much the the most utilitarian and unsexy vehicles on the market, and they depreciate staggeringly even in this market, because you know parents will buy them, and then their kids will make a mess out of them, yep. and they're just not very appealing on this. Second go around, but they're great vehicles, you know, not only in terms of their affordability, but also when you think about it, uh, a teenage kid who's going to go off to college or who's going to, you know, spread his wings or her wings and, and go out into the world can use a vehicle that's sizable, you know, that can carry around all their stuff and maybe they can even sleep in it if they want to uh, on a road trip somewhere. Um, so that's, that's one thing that I, I, I strongly recommend that, that people who are looking for a good first used car go for. And of course, they're also the standby cars. Uh, you know, the Toyota Corolla is the anvil. Standard of cars, it's uh, it's very hard to hurt a Corolla. Those things will go a quarter million miles easily. They're not sexy, they're not fast, but they're wonderfully durable cars that hold on to their value. And same thing goes for uh, the Honda equivalent, the Civic. That's an excellent car. The Hyundai Accent's also a good car too.
1: Okay, I I want to bounce one off you just because this is my my oldest son bought a used police Crown Victoria. Uh huh. It was excellent choice. Ugly as sin. But mm-hmm. he still maintains that it was the best car, you know, for him to, to own. Now, he drives a Volkswagen Passat, you know, a TDI, mm-hmm. loves it. It's, a, it's an awesome vehicle. But he speaks with such fondness of that old Crown Victoria because that thing was just, you know, well, it was literally bulletproof. It had Kevlar in the doors yeah. and the whole nine yards. But that car just would not quit.
2: It's a shame they don't make them anymore. They stopped building the Vic in 2011. So... Uh, it's hard to find them anymore. Uh, most police departments have tra- transitioned over to SUVs uh, like the Explorer or front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive vehicles like the current Ford Taurus. Uh, whereas that Vic was a traditional American big sedan, full-size sedan with a with a lazy V8 engine uh, that was very, very durable, very easy to fix. And also, and this is a, something that I think teen pa- uh, parents of teen drivers would be interested in, very safe. You know, that's a Uh, A heavy-duty vehicle that can take quite a hit. It's why cops love that Crown Vic. Um, Now, thinking about it, you might want to look into uh, Chargers. A lot of cops, uh, a lot of police departments use Chargers, and that's a very similar vehicle. And there are probably some of those that are coming onto the auction market or, uh, you know, police auctions, things of that nature, where you could find them. That's that. That would be a great choice as well.
1: I don't want to sound like I'm wringing my hands here, but I, I severely lament that pickup trucks are so unaffordable these days, even old pickup trucks.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Uh, that's why I cling to mine, uh, you know, which is a, it, it's a nothing special little O2 Nissan Frontier, two-wheel drive, manual transmission, um, but it suits me, and there's nothing like that available anymore, though Ford has come out with the, in, in, in my opinion, I don't like the name of it, the Maverick. Have you seen that?
1: I don't think I've seen it.
2: It looks like a compact pickup truck. It's really a front-wheel drive uh, thing that, uh, that that's designed to emulate what a truck is supposed to look like. It's not got a lot of, of, of capacity. It's not designed to pull things, and it's not designed to haul a whole lot, but it's the closest thing that you can get to the little runabout pickup trucks like My Frontier and the old Ford Ranger and vehicles like that that are just no longer available. And the big trucks, the 1500s, forget about it. You know, you're looking at... For anything, uh, with four-wheel drive, you're looking at about $40,000 or something like that.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's not good times to be shopping for used cars, as, as I'm learning no. <laughs> you know, with some pain right now.
2: Not a good time to be shopping for anything like that. But, yeah, cars in particular, it's never happened before in the entire 120-something-year history of the car business that in the course of less than a year, the price of used cars has escalated by more than 30%. That's an astounding thing. Absolutely.
1: Eric, we're down to about one minute left here. Let's take a moment to talk about your website. Tell us about your sponsors sure. as well.
2: Well, it's EP Autos. Very easy to find online. And if you're in the market for uh, a radar detector, I, I, you know, one of our uh, longtime advertisers is Valentine One. I think they make the finest detector on the market, and they recently updated their unit to deal with this chaff of electronica that is being emanated by new cars that can give false signals to a detector. And that's really important because the radar detector is not much use if you start to ignore it because it's picking up on the signals of all the cars around you.
1: Now, a good point. Eric, I appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much.
2: Of course. Uh, happy to. Looking forward to next time.
1: All right. Again, that's Eric Peters from epautos.com. I have links in the show notes to his website to some of the various topics we've touched on today make sure you read the comments in his articles as well. He has, uh, he has a pretty informed audience there. Some of those comments are extremely instructive.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. Uh, God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with Destin. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello
1: there and welcome to the show. This show is not about telling you what to think. In fact, it's not even about encouraging you to stop thinking. I'm all about uh, encouraging folks to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around us. And also what you and I can do to better improve that world. And And I don't mean in big ways that are going to make news headlines necessarily. Some people may actually have that calling. And I welcome them to step up and, and do what they feel called to do. But for most of us, it's going to look much different. It's just going to be the simple things. It's going to be being the kind of person who can can be self-reliant, teaching your kids how to be good, honest people who understand the difference between right and wrong. It's learning how to see through the propaganda that's all around us and knowing when to withdraw consent. You know, when, when people in positions of governance are either abusing or misusing the power that has been delegated to them. Nevertheless, we've got some great sponsors who make the show possible. MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. Also, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAMMO.com, Sewing and, Quilting Center.com, and GovernYourIncome.com. I wanted to start today with uh, the COVID narrative. You've heard me talk about this now for a few weeks. The narrative is coming apart. And, and I really believe it is. I mean, you have the, the CDC director when she was pressed to to make the distinction, you know, all these deaths that were reported with COVID, how do you distinguish uh, between them and people who simply died from COVID or those who died with COVID? And she stumbled, fumbled, and then, uh, well, that data is forthcoming. They can't keep us buffaloed forever. So the the truth is slowly coming out. But the conclusion that uh, folks who've been paying attention can't help but come to is... This zero COVID plan, we're going to lock it down. We're going we're gonna to defeat this virus through government action, through government intervention. It's been a total failure, regardless of how the experts may try to justify it or, you know, double down on it and implement even more lockdowns. We're going to do it again, but even harder. It was a total failure. So it's a pretty safe bet. The folks who pushed the hardest for these lockdowns are going to be scrambling, and they are scrambling right now, to avoid being seen as having supported it. And that goes right to the top, at least in America. Dr. Fauci, I was just following CDC guidelines. Like I said last week, he's ready for Nuremberg. With that attitude, I was just following orders. Ryan McMackin from the Mises Institute has a great piece on how and why the zero COVID plan was a total failure. He says the Chinese regime is doubling down at its zero COVID strategy. In recent weeks, new COVID cases have been detected in several cities in a world of the more contagious Omicron variant, that's to be expected. But what has been the Chinese state's response? Well, it's more the same. Lockdowns, travel suspensions, and more. NBC reports Tianjin, which detected China's first community spread of Omicron on Saturday, is rolling out a second round of mass testing on its 14 million residents on Wednesday. The outbreak has already spread to, to Anyang, a city in Henan province about 300 miles away, prompting a full lockdown. Tianjin officials said at a news conference Tuesday that all bus services to Beijing have been suspended. On Wednesday, 425 flights were canceled at Tianjin, Binhai International Airport, accounting for 95% of all scheduled flights. Tianjin authorities on Sunday ordered citizens not to leave the city unless absolutely necessary. Those who want to leave have to present a negative COVID test taken within 48 hours. Now, Ryan McMacken says, it's hard to believe that anyone still believes COVID will go away if government authorities just lock down harder. But China is hardly the only example of how this delusion can win many adherents among the technocrats and the expert class. After all, he says, let, us not, let it not be forgotten that much of the world has adopted a zero COVID policy early on, and this absurd policy endured for months. In Europe, of course, millions upon millions of people were virtually locked in their homes for months on end. As Philip Bagus reported from Spain in spring of 2020, one wasn't allowed to go outside without facing the wrath of the state's enforcers. Meanwhile, in America, the experts frequently spoke out in favor of zero COVID, stating that lockdowns could eradicate the disease and that people would have to stay on lockdown until that time. For example, on April 2nd of 2020, Anthony Fauci endorsed this idea, stating that social distancing requirements could not be relaxed until there are essentially no new cases, no new deaths for a period of time. Hawaii explicitly embraced zero COVID and adopted a policy in 2020 based on the idea that public schools would never reopen until there was no longer any community spread and no new cases were detected over a period of four weeks. Now, Ryan McMacken points out, needless to say, These were totally unrealistic goals. They reflected only the plans of technocrats who were more concerned with living out their bizarre fetishes for lockdowns and border closures that with gaining a better grasp of the situation uh, than with gaining a better grasp of the situation or respecting basic human rights. Even Australia, an island nation that could plausibly hope to actually close its borders, they've given up on the idea. In other words, the experts in America wanted to recreate Chinese despotism in America. They adopted a lockdown policy that had already been long rejected. Lockdowns were already expected to bring long-term side effects, like surges in mental health problems. Some of the worst of it among the young, now being reported by hospitals. The World Health Organization even concluded lockdowns ought to be rejected because there is no obvious rationale for this measure. But he says perhaps the media and government officials were so successful at sowing panic in the general population in the spring of 2020 that the health technocrats saw their chance to try a new experiment in social engineering that they previously had considered unfeasible. Fortunately, though, by the middle of 2020, it became clear that lockdowns simply weren't going to be tolerated by much of the general public. Most state and local governments in the U.S. abandoned zero COVID rapidly although the usual totalitarians in the media bemoaned the end of the policy, insisting that the abandonment of lockdowns would drench the non-lockdown jurisdictions in blood. This was predicted for U.S. states like Georgia and for countries like Sweden, where lockdowns were quickly jettisoned or not imposed at all. But as time went on, it became obvious that the non-lockdown jurisdictions did not fare significantly worse than the locked-down ones. Some areas, Sweden, for instance, fared better. Some of the world's harshest lockdown regimes, like those in Peru, Argentina, the UK, and New York, also had some of the worst rates of deaths per million. So for the zero-COVID crowd, reality got in the way. But that zero-COVID mentality endures, however. And the second wave of zero-COVID mentality came with the idea that with, with universal vaccination, COVID would disappear. And of course, once the vaccines began to appear, it was hailed as a magic bullet that would ensure the vaccinated would be unable to spread the disease. In fact, this ideology was expressed in a rant by Rachel Maddow back in March of 2020 when she harangued her viewers with the fact, in quotation marks, that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. Now she continued, a vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. The virus then cannot use that person to go anywhere else. Now, in case you're not clear on this, that was all a complete fabrication. The vaccine never stopped the spread. And with the advent of the Omicron variant, it's now apparently the case that the vaccine doesn't even slow the spread. The virus is quickly spreading among the vaccinated. So it's no longer possible to even pretend that the vaccine prevents transmission. The only argument left to supporters of the vaccine mandate is that vaccines help against serious disease and death. Well, that's excellent but it has nothing to do with public health because it's clear that the unvaccinated aren't the reason the disease has not been eradicated. And then there's the fact that the vaccination has in fact, or has in part likely contributed to new COVID mutations. Now this isn't new with COVID. The idea that treatments can lead to new mutations isn't new. And it's long been known under a variety of situations. Leaky vaccines can produce vaccine resistant mutations. But this is also known to occur in the case of COVID. And he links to an article in the Journal of Physical Chemistry where the authors note vaccine breakthrough or antibody resistant mutations provide new mechanism of viral evolution. And specifically on COVID, they write about how mutations are often more common in places with higher vaccination rates. So whether we're talking about vaccine mandates or lockdowns, it's clear the zero COVID strategy has been an abject failure. Now, they're still trying it in some places, like China, where government propaganda is largely unquestioned and where people practice unquestioning obedience to the regime at a scale that makes the all-too-complacent West look downright rebellious by comparison. But Ryan McMacken warns, don't expect the experts in any country to give up on their slogans anytime soon. He says it's clear that the reality will eventually catch up with them. Whether or not any respect for human rights remains at the end of it all, well, that's another matter. Check out the link I provide to this article in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey,
1: welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. A lot of folks have been moving to the Beehive State, and if you are one of them, and particularly if you are looking for a home and need a mortgage, whether it's a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, or even just to refinance your existing home, you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She also clearly understands the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. She's the one you want on your side when you need to make things happen, when time is of the essence. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. You can also uh, reach out and visit her at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, I've seen some pretty crazy departures from reality over the last few years, but there's a claim out there right now that if California is ever to attain true equity, then parents must be willing to give away their children. No, I wish that was a typo, and I wish this was, you know, I wish this was something, you know, straight out of the the pages of InfoWars. It's not. This is collectivist yearning at its very worst. And unfortunately, the the article was placed behind a paywall, at least in in the San Francisco, what is the article, the San Francisco Gate? Nonetheless, uh, there is a non-paywalled article on Yahoo News from Joe Matthews, who is the columnist here. But listen to what Matthews is asking. Matthew says, if California is ever going to achieve true equity, which by which I think he believes means inequality of outcomes, the state must require parents to give away their children. Today's Californians often hold up equity, the goal of a just society, completely free from bias as our greatest value. Governor Gavin Newsom makes decisions through an equity lens. Institutions from dance ensembles to tech companies have publicly pledged themselves to equity. But their promises are no match for the power of parents. Fathers and mothers with greater wealth and education are more likely to transfer these advantages to their children, compounding privilege over generations. As a result, children of less advantaged parents face an uphill struggle. Social mobility has stalled and democracy has been corrupted. More Californians are abandoning the dream. A recent Public Policy Institute of California poll found declining belief in the notion that you can get ahead through hard work. So Joe Matthews says, well, my solution, making raising your own children illegal, is simple. And while we wait for the legislation to pass, we can act now. The rich and poor should trade kids and homeowners might swap children with their homeless neighbors. I don't, you, Like me or you want, what was this guy smoking before he sat down to write this? Now he says, I recognize some naysayers will dismiss such a policy as ghastly, even totalitarian. Well, Joe, I hate to break it to you, but that was one of the big tenets of communism is, you know, the family is obsolete. It's a relic. It's, it's one of those classist warfare things. So, yeah, under communist regimes, children are property of the state. But please continue. Tell us, tell us what, what, where you want to go with this and let's, let's see if you're actually reinventing the wheel or just, you know, if, if, you're, if you're offering something new. He says, my proposal is quite modest, a fusion of traditional philosophy and today's most common political obsessions. In his Republic, Plato adopted Socrates' sage advice that children be possessed in common so that no parent will know his own offspring nor any child his parent's in order to defeat nepotism and create citizens loyal not to their sons, but to society. Today, a policy of universal orphanhood aligns with a powerful social trend that points to less interest in family. Californians are slower to marry, are having fewer children. Our birth rate is at an all-time low. So he says, my proposal should be politically unifying, fitting hand-in-glove with the most cherished policies of progressives and Trumpians alike. Oh, is there anything in between those, uh, Joe? Just wondering. Because maybe maybe there's some nuance at work here, but please continue on. He says the leftist introduction of anti-racism and gender identity in schools faces a bitter backlash from parents. Ending parenthood would end the backlash, helping dismantle white supremacy and outdated gender norms. That's probably the most totalitarian thing I've read in a while. (laughs) Now, he says Democrats would also have the opportunity to build a new pillar of the safety net a child-raising system called Foster Care for All. Over on the right, Republicans are happy to jettison parents' rights in pursuit of their greatest passions, like violating migrant rights. Once you've gone so far as to take immigrant children from their parents and put them in border concentration camps, it's a short walk to separating all Americans from their progeny. Universal Orphanhood also dovetails nicely with the pro-life campaign to end abortion rights. Justice Amy Coney Barrett during a recent case that could overturn Roe inspired this column. She posited that abortion rights are no longer necessary because all 50 states now have safe haven laws allowing women to turn their babies over to authorities after birth. My proposal would barely make mandatory such handovers of babies to the state. Now, he says, perhaps such coercion sounds dystopian. But just imagine the solidarity that universal orphanhood would create. Wouldn't children raised in one system find it easier to collaborate on global problems? Now, I don't expect universal support for universal orphanhood. A few contrarians lost in the empty chasm between American extremes might object to this rational proposal on emotional grounds. They might argue that pursuing your own conception of family is fundamental to freedom. They may also suggest that people really don't want to start or finish at the same point in life. They may even say that what we really desire is what the title orphan of the musical Annie demanded. I didn't want to be just another orphan, Mr. Warbucks. I wanted to believe I was special. But Joe Matthews says don't pay those critics any mind because they just can't see how our relentless pursuit of equity might birth a brave new world. Now maybe he's writing this as satire. I hope that he is. Maybe my sarcasm detector is, is jammed up and I'm not seeing, you know, the point he's trying to make here. But I don't know about you. I Becoming a parent was one of those great clarifying moments in life for me. And and the way that I knew that this was a great clarifying moment, I mean, look, our first pregnancy, it was it was exciting. We're starting a family, and my wife and I were just all excited, and we watched, you know, the babies develop. We took the Lamaze classes, and, you know, I really had no idea what I was in for, and I suspect I'm probably not alone in that. We show up at the hospital after her water broke. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning, but there we are waiting in our little delivery room. We've just been settled in. We're all checked in. She's hooked up to all the various monitors, checking the contractions and her heartbeat and so forth. And from the room down the hall, we hear screaming, legit screaming of a woman, you know, going through labor and delivery. I'll never forget the look in Becky's eyes when she turned to me and I turned to her as we heard that screaming. It was like, holy crud, what have we got ourselves into? But that wasn't the moment of clarity. The moment of clarity came when my daughter Mason arrived. And that little baby came into the world and she started to cry. And, you know, I was, I was of course, pretty stunned just to realize here she is. She's finally here. And my sister-in-law turned the camcorder to me and says, well, Dad, say something. And I went to speak and I couldn't. I was overcome with this incredible wave of joy. You've heard the phrase tears of joy. Those uh, those tears of joy would wash over me like a wave multiple times over the next few hours. And I had no idea that it was going to affect me that way. I mean, it just... It was, it was a powerful, powerful experience. And I'm not ashamed to tell you, my entire perspective shifted at that moment. And it wasn't just, ah, oh, the wonder of birth. What shifted my perspective was the realization that... I now had a stewardship in which I was directly accountable to God who had allowed my wife and I to participate in the process of creation, procreation. And it was very humbling. I could feel the weight of responsibility come down on my shoulders. But it's also been the most amazing and beautiful experience ever.
0: Don't get in the way of stewardship. Things like this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello
1: there and welcome to the show. This show is not about telling you what to think. In fact, it's not even about encouraging you to stop thinking. I'm all about uh, encouraging folks to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around us. And also what you and I can do. To better improve that world. And and I don't mean in big ways that are going to make news headlines necessarily. Some people may actually have that calling. And I welcome them to step up and and do what they feel called to do. But for most of us, it's going to look much different. It's just going to be the simple things. It's going to be being the kind of person who can can be self-reliant. Teaching your kids how to be good, honest people. Who understand the difference between right and wrong. It's learning how to see through the propaganda that's all around us, and knowing when to withdraw consent. You know, when, when people in positions of governance are either abusing or misusing the power that has been delegated to them. Nevertheless, we've got some great sponsors who make the show possible, Monticello College.org, LifesavingFood dot com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAMO.com sewingandquiltingcenter.com and, and governyourincome.com. I wanted to start today with uh, the COVID narrative. You've heard me talk about this now for a few weeks. The narrative is coming apart, and, and I really believe it is. I mean, you have the, the CDC director, when she was pressed to, to make the distinction, well, you know, all these deaths that were reported with COVID, how do you distinguish uh, between them and people who simply died from COVID or those who died with COVID? And she stumbled, fumbled, and then, uh, well... That data is forthcoming. They can't keep us buffaloed forever. So the the truth is slowly coming out. But the conclusion that uh, folks who've been paying attention can't help but come to is this zero COVID plan. We're going to lock it down. We're going to we're going to defeat this virus through government action, through government intervention. It's been a total failure regardless of how the experts may try to justify it or, you know, double down on it and implement even more lockdowns. We're going to do it again, but even harder. It was a total failure. So it's a pretty safe bet. The folks who pushed the hardest for these lockdowns are going to be scrambling, and they are scrambling right now, to avoid being seen as having supported it. And that goes right to the top, at least in America. Dr. Fauci, I was just following CDC guidelines. Like I said last week, he's ready for Nuremberg. With that attitude, I was just following orders. Ryan McMacken from the Mises Institute has a great piece on how and why the zero COVID plan was a total failure. He says the Chinese regime is doubling down at its zero COVID strategy. In recent weeks, new COVID cases have been detected in several cities. In a world of the more contagious Omicron variant, that's to be expected. But what has been the Chinese state's response? Well, it's more the same. Lockdowns, travel suspensions, and more. NBC reports Tianjin, which detected China's first community spread of Omicron on Saturday, is rolling out a second round of mass testing on its 14 million residents on Wednesday. The outbreak has already spread to, to Anyang, a city in Henan province about 300 miles away, prompting a full lockdown. Tianjin officials said at a news conference Tuesday that all bus services to Beijing have been suspended, on Wednesday, 425 flights were canceled at Tianjin, Binhai International Airport, accounting for 95% of all scheduled flights. Tianjin authorities on Sunday ordered citizens not to leave the city unless absolutely necessary. Those who want to leave have to present a negative COVID test taken within 48 hours. Now, Ryan McMacken says it's hard to believe that anyone still believes COVID will go away if government authorities just lock down harder. But China is hardly the only example of how this delusion can win many adherents among the technocrats and the expert class. After all, he says, let us not let it not be forgotten that much of the world has adopted a zero COVID policy early on, and this absurd policy endured for months. In Europe, of course, millions upon millions of people were virtually locked in their homes for months on end. As Philip Bagus reported from Spain in spring of 2020, one wasn't allowed to go outside without facing the wrath of the state's enforcers. Meanwhile, in America, the experts frequently spoke out in favor of zero COVID, stating that lockdowns could eradicate the disease and that people would have to stay on lockdown until that time. For example, on April 2nd of 2020, Anthony Fauci endorsed this idea, stating that social distancing requirements could not be relaxed until there are essentially no new cases, no new deaths for a period of time. Hawaii explicitly embraced zero COVID and adopted a policy in 2020 based on the idea that public schools would never reopen until there was no longer any community spread and no new cases were detected over a period of four weeks. Now, Ryan McMacken points out, needless to say, these were totally unrealistic goals. They reflected only the plans of technocrats who were more concerned with living out their bizarre fetishes for lockdowns and border closures. That with gaining a better grasp of the situation uh, than with gaining a better grasp of the situation or respecting basic human rights, even Australia, an island nation that could plausibly hope to actually close its borders, they've given up on the idea. In other words, the experts in America wanted to recreate Chinese despotism in America. They adopted a lockdown policy that had already been long rejected. Lockdowns were already expected to bring long-term side effects, like surges in mental health problems. Some of the worst of it among the young, now being reported by hospitals. The World Health Organization even concluded lockdowns ought to be rejected because there is no obvious rationale for this measure. But he says perhaps the media and government officials were so successful at sowing panic in the general population in the spring of 2020 that the health technocrats saw their chance to try a new experiment in social engineering that they previously had considered unfeasible. Fortunately, though, by the middle of 2020, it became clear that lockdowns simply weren't going to be tolerated by much of the general public. Most state and local governments in the U.S. abandoned zero COVID rapidly, although the usual totalitarians in the media bemoaned the end of the policy insisting that the abandonment of lockdowns would drench the non-lockdown jurisdictions in blood. This was predicted for U.S. states like Georgia and for countries like Sweden, where lockdowns were quickly jettisoned or not imposed at all. But as time went on, it became obvious that the non-lockdown jurisdictions did not fare significantly worse than the locked-down ones. Some areas, Sweden, for instance, fared better. Some of the world's harshest lockdown regimes, like those in Peru, Argentina, the UK, and New York, also had some of the worst rates of deaths per million. So for the zero-COVID crowd, reality got in the way. But that zero-COVID mentality endures, however. And the second wave of zero-COVID mentality came with the idea that with universal vaccination, COVID would disappear. And of course, once the vaccines began to appear, it was hailed as a magic bullet that would ensure the vaccinated would be unable to spread the disease. In fact, this ideology was expressed in a rant by Rachel Maddow back in March of 2020 when she harangued her viewers with the fact, in quotation marks, that the virus stops with every vaccinated person. Now she continued, a vaccinated person gets exposed to the virus, the virus does not infect them, the virus then cannot use that person to go anywhere else. Now, in case you're not clear on this, that was all a complete fabrication. The vaccine never stopped the spread. And with the advent of the Omicron variant, it's now apparently the case that the vaccine doesn't even slow the spread. The virus is quickly spreading among the vaccinated. So it's no longer possible to even pretend that the vaccine prevents transmission. The only argument left to supporters of the vaccine mandate is that vaccines help against serious disease and death. Well, that's excellent. But it has nothing to do with public health. Because it's clear that the unvaccinated aren't the reason the disease has not been eradicated. And then there's the fact that the vaccination has in fact or has in part likely contributed to new COVID mutations. Now, this isn't new with COVID. The idea that treatments can lead to new mutations isn't new. And it's long been known under a variety of situations. Leaky vaccines can produce vaccine resistant mutations. But this is also known to occur in the case of COVID. And he links to an article in the Journal of Physical Chemistry where the authors note vaccine breakthrough or antibody resistant mutations provide new mechanism of viral evolution. And specifically on COVID, they write about how mutations are often more common in places with higher vaccination rates. So whether we're talking about vaccine mandates or lockdowns, it's clear the zero COVID strategy has been an abject failure. Now, they're still trying it in some places, like China, where government propaganda is largely unquestioned and where people practice unquestioning obedience to the regime at a scale that makes the all-too-complacent West look downright rebellious by comparison. But Ryan McMacken warns, don't expect the experts in any country to give up on their slogans anytime soon. He says it's clear that the reality will eventually catch up with them. Whether or not any respect for human rights remains at the end of it all, well, that's another matter. Check out the link I provide to this article in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey,
1: welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. A lot of folks have been moving to the Beehive State, and if you are one of them, and particularly if you are looking for a home and need a mortgage, whether it's a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, or even just to refinance your existing home, you need to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She also clearly understands the ins and outs of what lenders and borrowers need. She's the one you want on your side when you need to make things happen, when time is of the essence. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. You can also uh, reach out and visit her at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Her NMLS ID is 715 386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, I've seen some pretty crazy departures from reality over the last few years, but there's a claim out there right now that if California is ever to attain true equity, then parents must be willing to give away their children. No, I wish that was a typo, and I wish this was, you know, I wish this was something, you know, straight out of the the pages of InfoWars. It's not. This is collectivist yearning at its very worst. And unfortunately, the the article was placed behind a paywall, at least in, in the San Francisco... What is the article? The San Francisco Gate? Nonetheless, uh, there is a non-paywalled article on Yahoo News from Joe Matthews, who is the columnist here. But listen to what Matthews is asking. Matthews says, if California is ever going to achieve true equity, which by which I think he believes uh, means inequality of outcomes... The state must require parents to give away their children. Today's Californians often hold up equity, the goal of a just society, completely free from bias, as our greatest value. Governor Gavin Newsom makes decisions through an equity lens. Institutions from dance ensembles to tech companies have publicly pledged themselves to equity. But their promises are no match for the power of parents. Fathers and mothers with greater wealth and education are more likely to transfer these advantages to their children, compounding privilege over generations. As a result, children of less advantaged parents face an uphill struggle. Social mobility has stalled and democracy has been corrupted. More Californians are abandoning the dream. A recent Public Policy Institute of California poll found declining belief in the notion that you can get ahead through hard work. So Joe Matthews says, "Well, my solution, making raising your own children illegal is simple. And while we wait for the legislation to pass, we can act now. The rich and poor should trade kids and homeowners might swap children with their homeless neighbors." I don't you like me or you what was this guy smoking before he sat down to write this? Now he says, "I recognize some naysayers will dismiss such a policy as ghastly, even totalitarian." Well, Joe I hate to break it to you, but that was one of the big tenets of communism is you know the family is obsolete it's a relic it's it's one of those classist warfare things, so yeah, under communist regimes, children are property of the state but please continue tell us tell us what what where you want to go with this and let's let's see if you're actually reinventing the wheel or just you know if if you're if you're offering something new. He says, my proposal is quite modest, a fusion of traditional philosophy and today's most common political obsessions. In his Republic, Plato adopted Socrates' sage advice that children be possessed in common so that no parent will know his own offspring nor any child his parents in order to defeat nepotism and create citizens loyal not to their sons but to society. Today, a policy of universal orphanhood aligns with a powerful social trend that points to less interest in family. Californians are slower to marry, are having fewer children. Our birth rate is at an all-time low. So he says, my proposal should be politically unifying, fitting hand in glove with the most cherished policies of progressives and Trumpians alike. Oh, is there anything in between those, uh, Joe? Just wondering. Because maybe maybe there's some nuance at work here, but please continue on. He says, the leftist introduction of anti-racism and gender identity in schools faces a bitter backlash from parents. Ending parenthood, would end the backlash, helping dismantle white supremacy and outdated gender norms. That's probably the most totalitarian thing I've read in a while. (laughs) Now, he says Democrats would also have the opportunity to build a new pillar of the safety net, a child-raising system called Foster Care for All. Over on the right, Republicans are happy to jettison parents' rights in pursuit of their greatest passions, like violating migrant rights. Once you've gone so far as to take immigrant children from their parents and put them in border concentration camps, it's a short walk to separating all Americans from their progeny. Universal Orphanhood also dovetails nicely with the pro-life campaign to end abortion rights. Justice Amy Coney Barrett, during a recent case that could overturn Roe, inspired this column. She posited that abortion rights are no longer necessary because all 50 states now have safe haven laws allowing women to turn their babies over to authorities after birth. My proposal would barely make mandatory such handovers of babies to the state. Now, he says, perhaps such coercion sounds dystopian. But just imagine the solidarity that universal orphanhood would create. Wouldn't children raised in one system find it easier to collaborate on global problems? Now, I don't expect universal support for universal orphanhood, A few contrarians lost in the empty chasm between American extremes might object to this rational proposal on emotional grounds. They might argue that pursuing your own conception of family is fundamental to freedom. They may also suggest that people really don't want to start or finish at the same point in life. They may even say that what we really desire is what the title orphan of the musical Annie demanded. I didn't want to be just another orphan, Mr. Warbucks. I wanted to believe I was special. Joe Matthews says don't pay those critics any mind because they just can't see how our relentless pursuit of equity might birth a brave new world. Now maybe he's writing this as satire. I hope that he is. Maybe my sarcasm detector is is jammed up and I'm not seeing, you know, the point he's trying to make here but I don't know about you. I becoming a parent was one of those great clarifying moments in life for me. And and the way that I knew that this was a great clarifying moment, I mean, look, our first pregnancy, it was, it was exciting. We're starting a family, and my wife and I were just all excited, and we watched, you know, the babies develop. We took the Lamaze classes, and, you know, I really had no idea what I was in for, and I suspect I'm probably not alone in that. We show up at the hospital after her water broke. It's like 1 o'clock in the morning, but there we are waiting in our little delivery room. We've just been settled in. We're all checked in. She's hooked up to all the various monitors, checking the contractions and her heartbeat and so forth. And from the room down the hall, we hear screaming, legit screaming of a woman, you know, going through labor and delivery. I'll never forget the look in Becky's eyes when she turned to me and I turned to her as we heard that screaming. It was like, holy crud, what have we got ourselves into? But that wasn't the moment of clarity. The moment of clarity came when my daughter Mason arrived. And that little baby came into the world and she started to cry. And, you know, I was, I was of course, pretty stunned just to realize here she is. She's finally here. And my sister-in-law turned the camcorder to me and says, Well, Dad, say something. And I went to speak and I couldn't. I was overcome with this incredible wave of joy. You've heard the phrase tears of joy. Those uh, those tears of joy would wash over me like a wave multiple times over the next few hours. And I had no idea that it was going to affect me that way. I mean, it just... It was, it was a powerful, powerful experience. And I'm not ashamed to tell you, my entire perspective shifted at that moment. And it wasn't just, ah, oh, the wonder of birth. What shifted my perspective was the realization that... I now had a stewardship in which I was directly accountable to God who had allowed my wife and I to participate in the process of creation, procreation. And it was very humbling. I could feel the weight of responsibility come down on my shoulders. But it's also been the most amazing and beautiful experience ever.
0: Don't get in the way of stewardship. Things like this. This is the Brian Hyde show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you for joining our growing audience of wrong thinkers, not just across America, but actually throughout the world. You know, it's not a great big audience, but about 5% of my listening audience lives elsewhere. And I'm still trying to figure out, for some reason, uh, a full uh, full percent, 1% of that 5% of my foreign listeners, my my overseas international listeners, is in Brazil. I guess I would chalk it up to the fact I used to be a student of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and maybe, maybe uh, Helio's family, maybe the Gracies have, have caught on, hey, you know, Brian's doing doing a show now let's (laughs) let's see what he has to say I don't know what it is but wherever you are listening I hope that you are finding um, among the various news stories that I'm sharing I hope you're finding a sense of hope and encouragement that no matter how crazy things get there's a very exciting dynamic that is driving this time and and I believe it's it's probably more of a spiritual than a political dynamic but even as things get more difficult even as things get more challenging I suspect that there are an increasing number of people who are recognizing some kind of a personal wake-up call, and I use that word call very deliberately, that they are called upon to stand and be witnesses of what is true, what is good, what is worthwhile, and I suspect that the fact that you're listening to this show means you are one of those people. I'm very grateful to rub shoulders with you, even if it's just virtually, but I'm, I'm thankful that, uh, that you are one of the people who puts a higher priority on truth than simply comforting lies or propaganda that makes you feel like, well, see, I've been right all along. So here's a question for you. Have you ever changed your mind when someone insisted that you trust the science? The reason I ask is Paul Rosenberg has a great column on science, what it is, what it isn't. And since it's kind of been a separating line in society for the last couple of years, do you trust the science or not? Maybe we should first define our terms and see if, if we're really on the same page. Paul Rosenberg says, <clears throat> science, since it was monopolized by institutions, and especially over the past two years, has become something quite other than what it was found to be during the early Enlightenment. That is, what's called science by the mouthpieces of the status quo is not what science was originally now children need to be familiarized with science proper especially right now or they'll think that they're going to think that the way things are is the way they've always been because these are the only things they've ever experienced so this installment is dedicated to science and to them he says let's begin with this fact most of what you've heard called science isn't science so let's start over Science is not a group of schools or laboratories. Science is not a set of facts. Science is not a set of laws. Science is a process. It is a technique for verifying our ideas about the world. In other words, science is nothing more than a way of verifying things. All the other things you've heard called science were wrong. Now, to understand this, you have to return to understanding knowledge in the old world. He says, our world is always full of smart people figuring things out, but the way it was done in the old days wasn't very effective. At that time, most people tried to decide based on a big pattern of what the world was like. They thought about the pattern they were taught, then tried to fit facts inside of it. For example, many of the Greeks believed that a group of gods made things happen in the world. So if there was a flood or a fire or a plague, they would refer to the pattern of the gods making things happen. They might say, what have the people done to anger Zeus? Others might agree that the people did something bad, but blame one of the other gods. Still, others might disagree and say that the people did nothing wrong, but there was just a dispute between two of the gods. Now, in all of these cases, everyone simply accepted the idea that gods made things happen, and then they tried to figure things out within that pattern. This was the usual pattern of using knowledge in the old world, and it wasn't just the Greeks and their gods. It was almost everyone. They might have different models and patterns to judge by, but they stuck with their big pattern of how the world worked and then tried to fit every new fact into it. Now, because of this, they didn't do a whole lot of experimenting and verifying things. For example, Aristotle taught that heavy things fall faster than lighter things. And it seems no one bothered to check until Galileo proved this to be false almost 2,000 years later. And it was a simple experiment. You could do it yourself at home. But this led to endless trouble and suffering in the old world, unnecessary suffering and trouble. Francis Bacon, however, reversed the process. Now, he was an English philosopher and author. After much study, he and a few others began to understand that the knowledge process of the old world was backward. Soon enough, they put together a reversed process called the scientific method. Bacon wrote a book called Novum Organum in which he explained the new method. So the new method started with the smallest facts and verified them. Then once they were very carefully checked, new things could be built on top of them. That let them know things for sure before they constructed something bigger. This is how Bacon explained it. If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. Now what Bacon means here is that if you begin by assuming nothing in other words, with doubts, you can test and develop solid facts. And if you do this consistently, you can be very sure about a lot of things. But if you begin thinking that you know the way everything really is with certainties, you'll end up with lots of doubts because many facts won't fit into your pattern. Science discovers small, specific truths first, arranges them into larger theories, and then comes to the most general truths last of all. The scientific method demands that facts found through observation and experimentation are the only solid ground upon which to build. Then, if you find new evidence that contradicts the existing structure, you have to tear it down and start over. One of the best modern scientists, Richard Feynman, put it this way, It doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is, it doesn't matter how smart you are, if it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. Which brings us to the problem with science. Paul Rosenberg says the big problem with science is that it's slow. It provides small answers, one at a time. Everything has to be tested. Experiments have to very carefully be very carefully designed so that the conclusion is very clear. All of this takes time. And then, even after all of this, you still have to show your results to other people and ask them to prove you wrong. Now, this honestly is disappointing. There are so many questions, and science is so slow in answering them. Nonetheless, this is the best tool we've got. It's better to move ahead slowly and correctly than to sprint back and forth making mistakes. Science works. Other methods just don't. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, sure, some people who call themselves scientists lie about their findings or distort them. But that's not a problem with science. That's a problem with people lying. And such things happen from time to time in every area of life. Now, what about inspiration? Does this mean that inspiration is a bad thing, that we should just toss it out? No, he says it doesn't. It only means that you have to use inspiration properly. Sometimes inspiration can lead you to the right answer. In fact, there have been quite a few scientists who got the answer to their biggest question in a dream. But there's one crucial element to this. All inspirations have to be tested. So there's nothing wrong with inspiration. In fact, it's often useful, but it has to be tested. Everything must be verified in order to be trusted, including inspiration. Otherwise, it's not science. So here's the checklist versions of the process we call science. How to know things. Number one, observe things. Number two, form an explanation for what you observe. Number three, test your explanation. Try to prove it wrong. Now, this is how you develop new things. Number one, observe things. Number two, arrive at an explanation of what you observe. Number three, extend your extrapol- your explanation. In other words, you extrapolate. Number four, test your extrapolation. The short version of developing new things is begin with one or more things you know. Number two, extrapolate. Number three, test your extrapolations. This is pretty sound advice. You don't even have to be a scientist to get this. And there's just two rules that apply. No shortcuts are allowed. Hunches are fine for extrapolations, but can never be substituted for actually testing what you know. And number two, he says, tell other people exactly how you did your work and ask them to prove you wrong. I don't remember who it was that pointed this out to me, but a few years ago, um, I, I found a very enlightening observation And that is that there was a time when science was pursued simply for the sake of discovery. Since that time, though, um, science has become monetized. And there are still people, I'm sure, who are driven by that uh, that thirst for discovery. But there are also a lot of people who realize, hey, there are some big-time government grants or there are even grants from the private sector that are available if we're willing to jump through the hoops in order to get those. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that all scientists are corrupt, but I am going to suggest that human nature being what it is, when you incentivize someone to research something and their, uh, their ability to get funding to do that research is contingent on keeping their uh, whoever's funding them happy, don't be too surprised if their findings somehow magically mirror exactly what their funder would like to see. Does it sound conspiratorial? Sorry, there's there's no other way to say it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show.
1: Listen, if you uh, find value... In the uh, content that I provide on a daily basis, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing and getting my show notes. There's no obligation here. I'm not going to sell your email to anybody else or share it with anybody else. But I will email to your inbox every day that I do the show my show notes, which includes links to the various articles, the various uh, authors or commentators that I have on this program. And you can take it from there. I trust you, if you want to you know, follow it down the rabbit hole and go see where does all this lead, you're going to find plenty of material to work with. Just go to the thebryanhideshow.com, subscribe, and uh, I'll take it from there. Well, as things continue to devolve into societal and economic instability, I know there are a lot of folks who are pondering whether or not to relocate. Now, Charles Hugh Smith has a very interesting column that says the, uh, the question that you need to answer is this. Should you move while you can or when you must? He says this gives an extreme advantage to those few who move first long before they must. The financial advantage for first movers is equally extreme. But he also points out, moving is a difficult decision, so we hesitate. But when the window to do so closes, it's too late. We always think we have all the time in the world to ponder, calculate, and explore, but then things change and all the options we had once are gone for good. Besides the fact, moving to a new locale is difficult for those of us who are well established in the place we call home. You add in things like a house you love or jobs and work, kids in school, a parent living with us and all the emotional attachments to friends, extended family, colleagues and favorite haunts. And for many and most likely, um, likely most people, moving is out of the question. Now, he pointed something out that really brought back some fond memories. He says, many of us have fond memories of moving when we were in our late teens or early 20s. Everything we owned fit in the backseat and trunk of a beaten up old car, and off we went. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember those days with a lot of fondness. I could put everything I, I owned into the back of my little pickup truck, and moving was, was a one-day thing, and I could pretty much do it on my own. I think the last time we moved, it was two 26-foot U-Hauls. And I still have stuff that I need to get rid of. That's another story for another day. The point is, once you put down roots in a home, work an enterprise or um, schools, neighborhood or networks, it becomes a Herculean task to move. Moving to another state or province isn't just a matter of the physical movement of possessions and buying or renting a new dwelling Itself an arduous process, but you also have to transfer medical and auto insurance, find new dentists and doctors, open local bank or credit union accounts, obtain local business licenses, and a staggering list of institutions and enterprises that require an address change. That's complicated. It's time consuming. So, knowing this, he says, I don't ask this question lightly. Should you move while you can or when you must? And he says the question is consequential because the window in which we have options or still have options can slam shut with little warning. Now, Charles Hugh Smith says the origin of the question will be visible to those who've read his blog posts throughout 2021 on system fragility. Our dependence on long, brittle supply chains, the vulnerabilities created by these dependencies. And he says my polite, I hope, suggestions to fashion not just a plan B for temporary disruptions. But also a plan C for permanent disruptions. Now, he has a new book out called Global Crisis National Renewal, a revolutionary grand strategy for the United States. And he says that book is a result of realities that few are willing to face. The extreme inequality we now have in the U.S. leads to social collapse. That's the lesson of history. So to believe as if collapse is impossible is to ignore the evidence that a social collapse is inevitable when inequality reaches extremes. Humans, human and nature dynamics, modeling inequality and use of resources in the collapse or sustainability of societies. Now, social collapse has consequences. So we have to ask, where do we want to be in the vast human herd when social order unravels? Now, he says his new book also addresses the transition that's obvious but easily denied. We've transitioned from an era of abundance to an era of scarcity. There are many historical examples of what happens as scarcity diminishes living standards and puts increasing stress on individuals, families, communities, and nations. Now, there are ways to adapt to scarcity. That's the point of his book. But nation states and the elites who run them are optimized for abundance, not scarcity. So they lack the means to adapt to scarcity. Their default setting is to keep pursuing a return to higher consumption growth by increasing by increasingly extreme means, for example, printing trillions of dollars and giving it to wealthy elites and corporations and printing additional trillions to give away as bread and circuses, in other words, stimulus to the masses. And there is no historical evidence that this vast, endless creation of currency is consequence free or successful. He says this delusional pursuit of endless growth that is no longer possible due to resource depletion and soaring costs of extraction, transport, etc., also leads to collapse. This is the modern day equivalent of squandering the last resources available on ever more elaborate and completely unproductive temples in the hopes of appeasing the gods of growth. Now, he says, as I also detail in the book, the status quo is fantastically wasteful and ineffective. It now takes 20 to 25 years to build a single bridge or tunnel, and each project is billions of dollars over budget. Yet we're assured the entire nation will seamlessly and painlessly transition away from hydrocarbon fuels to alternative energy in 20 to 25 years. Never mind that this would require building a new nuclear plant or equivalent every month for the next 20 years. He says skeptics are just naysayers. And while a possible transition to a degrowth economy and society is certainly physically possible, the current status quo lacks the will, structure, leadership, or desire to manage such a transition. So while no one is entirely independent of long supply chains and energy-intensive industrial economies, the lower one's dependency and one's exposure to the risks of social disorder, the better off one will be. Put another way... The greater one's self-reliance and independence from global supply chains, the lower the impact should things break down. All right, that makes sense. Now, the closer one is to local sources of energy, fresh water, food, etc., the lower the likelihood of losing all access to these essentials. The wealthiest few hedge their risks by having one or more homes they can escape to if urban life breaks down. When risks rise, the wealthy start buying rural homes sight unseen for double the price locals paid just a few months earlier. But here's the problem. Roughly 81% of Americans live in urban zones, 270 million people. And only around 19%, roughly 60 million people, live in rural areas. About 31% of urban residents live in dense urban cores. About 25% live in suburban counties. The remaining 24% live in urban clusters and metropolitan areas, smaller cities, etc. Rural regions have plenty of land, but relatively few dwellings due to the low population density. In fact, much of the land is owned by government agencies, corporations, or large landowners, so a relatively small percentage is available for housing. Many rural economies have stagnated for decades, so the housing stock has not grown by much and older homes have deteriorated due to being abandoned or poorly maintained. Few building contractors survive the stagnation, and so finding crews to build new homes is also non-trivial. So when the wealthiest few <laughs> excuse me, rush out to buy second or third homes in a desirable rural area in Montana or Idaho or Utah, Colorado, North Carolina, etc., they find a very restricted supply of homes available. This generates a bidding war for relatively few homes considered acceptable. Prices skyrocket, pricing out the locals, who soon resent the wealthy newcomers' financial power and fear the inevitable rise of political and commercial power their wealth can buy. (coughs) Bill Gates. At present, he says, few anticipate urban America becoming a dicey place to live and own a home, but the inequality and the hollowing out of the economy by globalization and financialization has left cities entirely dependent on diesel-fueled trucks to deliver virtually everything. This is also true of rural communities as well, but some rural areas still produce energy and food, and given the lower population density, these communities are less dependent on global supply chains and therefore more self-sufficient. Rural households have more opportunities to raise animals, to grow vegetables, etc., and more opportunities to have the supportive relationships with neighbors who actually produce something tangible and essential. Now, there is much more to this article by Charles Hugh Smith. I'm going to leave it to you to discover that for yourself. You can click on the show notes at the show.com and see what you think. But that's a very interesting question. Do you move when you can or do you move when you must? I know how I would and did answer that question. I hope you come to the right conclusion yourself.
2: This is The Brian Hyde Show.